two, one, and welcome back to a little bit of synergy. I am your host, Anthony Thomas, 11001, or just Tony T. Tonight I'm joined by a special guest, Mr. Mark Scheffler. You might know him from the uh, cult classic Last House on the Left. Welcome, Mark. Well, thank you. How are you, Tony? Nice. Uh, thank you for having me. You should taking the time, Mark. You uh, you uh, you showed up at these are my prime podcasting hours. I hate to waste them, and I'm glad I'm glad I got to have you on. Because it's very uh, kind of you to say. It's an honor. Yeah, a lot of buzz in the community. When the uh, there's like a resurgence in the popularity of the film. It seems like. Well, but, interesting. Uh, First time I saw it all put together, um, I saw an answer print of it at, at a screening um, at a film waste post-production house on the west side of Manhattan, casting crew screening, cast crew and investors. So I walked outside afterwards and talked to David Hess and Fred Lincoln, and we all kind of looked at each other and laughed and and pretty much said the same thing to each other, which was, it was great meeting you guys. We'll be friends forever, I think. Uh, uh, but no one's ever going to come to see this piece of shit. <laughs> and that—that that was what we thought. So you know, it got released initially. Uh, I think Sean made thirty prints in uh, the first run and uh, delivered them to the to the uh, people who financed the film, Hallmark Releasing, out of Boston. And they put them in their drive-ins. They had like, I don't know, a dozen drive-ins in the New England area. And uh, they put the film in there. And it was, you know, first three weeks, four weeks, was doing decent business, was doing exactly what they thought. And somehow Roger Ebert got a hold of uh, a print, screened it, wrote a three and a half out of four star review. And... I, you know, people toss the word literally around uh, uh, like a racquetball these days, but literally overnight, everything changed. I walked in, I walked into Sean's office the, like the day after or the day that the Ebert review came out. And I remember him running around like a lunatic uh, uh, trying to, to scramble to get a thousand prints because he just got an order for a thousand prints. <laughs> yeah, so, so um yeah, it's been it's been uh, an interesting ride with that movie. And then the, the point of what I was going to say is last August, Last House, the, the film was part of an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York screened as part of a, a of a of a exhibition on cinema and film with the theme being uh, uh, films that have had a uh, visceral effect on the human body. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's really run a gamut. I, I, uh, I'm dumbfounded by it. I sort of understand it, but I'm dumb, still dumbfounded by it. I, I'm even more dumbfounded the fact that, that uh, I had anything to do with it. <laughs> well, you definitely had an integral role in the Yes, I know that. I'm I'm reminded of that all the time, which makes it even more of a mind fuck for me. 
you embody the pathos, the whole pathos of the story. Well, you know, I I I, I was grateful to Wes and Sean uh, uh, to to have cast me, and um, I'm grateful that I'm a very tiny grain of sand on the beach of American film history. Right, I'm I'm part of it, you know, I'm tiny tiny part, but yet a part of it. Yes, definitely. What else? I mean, I, I was looking at your um, your IMDb Discog. Yeah, IMDb. Yeah, yeah. Some stuff I was trying so, to find. So, um, what happened was I so became enthralled with filmmaking, the whole process, mm -hmm. that I want. I just after Last House, I I went. I did some commercials in New York afterwards, but. I sort of concentrated. I wanted to become a writer. I, okay. I, I really that that had uh, some kind of magical allure for me, right? Yeah. So I put my, you know, I, I I didn't stop going on auditions, but I more kind of concentrated on 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 that, and you know, kind of self taught stuff, and uh, was very motivated by. Uh, the, um, how do I say this? Okay. When I left college in 1969, I had three life goals. I dropped out of college. I was going to LSU in Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. And um, I had three life goals. I wanted to smoke as much weed as possible. <laughs> I wanted to sleep with as many different women as possible. And I wanted to make, you know, just enough money to afford the weed and the women. <laughs> and and I always wanted to be in the entertainment business, so it all kind of seemed like the right thing to do. So I, you know, continued acting, and and uh, after after at Last House was a, a an awakening for me. Okay, and I got to experience what it was like to be one of the stars of a top 10 movie in the United States. Yeah. Albeit for like, you know, maybe two or three weeks, it wasn't very long, uh -huh. but it was very real for the yeah. time that it existed. And I made the decision during that three week period that this was an excellent career choice. I, I had made, I had made a proper decision for myself. Okay. Okay. And then everything after Last House, which had, you know, had a, a meteoric rise, but, you know, it, it fell off the face of the earth just as quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so there I was back again being an out-of-work actor. <laughs> just a fucking out-of-work actor in New York, you know? There's like thousands, millions of me. <laughs> you know? So, yes, this, this is silly. And 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 uh, where once the rivers flowed, now we're nothing but you know uh, dry riverbeds. Okay. <laughs> I, I was spending a, a time alone, and you know I wasn't used to myself anymore. <laughs> uh, so um, I I didn't know what I was going to do. And, and then one night I was at a party uh, in New York, in Manhattan, and I I, I see a guy, no different looking than me, type-wise, uh, uh, talking to a stunningly beautiful model actress type in her early 20s. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. It's fucking stunning. Like you could have just snapped a picture and put it on a magazine. And whatever this guy was saying to her, this woman was uh, trapped in his tractor beam. She was buying it, right? She was fucking buying what this guy was selling. You bet your ass. So, you know, under the guise of, you know, being hungry and wanting a snack or two, I moseyed over to the table and uh, I started listening to, to their conversation. And what I heard was this guy saying, well, I finished act two and I'm about to start the third act. I think I have the ending figured out and I really got to get to work because my agent out in L.A. has, uh, you know, has a studio breathing down his neck. I got to turn this in. And she's just like lapping this shit up like it was like milk and honey. And they leave together, right? Mm -hmm. They leave together. And I thought to myself, hmm, I could do that. <laughs> I, I could tell girls I'm a writer. So, so um, I went out and bought a bunch of books on writing. <clears throat> and I read them, picked up buzzwords, you know, plot, climax, uh, rising action, narrative, underlying narrative, subtext. You know, I picked up all, you know, all the, all the lingo. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started going around to places and everywhere I went in mixed company, I was, uh, I was a writer. Okay. And the more I did it, it, you know, it grew exponentially into actually sounding like something. Right. And then I started using it with women and okay. it, and it worked like it just worked. It just like I just had it down, right? It was like a like a stand-up routine that I had been breaking in and breaking. It just worked. So I was I was sort of ride, riding the wave of that because uh, uh, I maybe done it like twenty times, twenty five times, you know. And it got better. It got like really real. Uh, and and um, I was in an audition or a commercial at a, at a place where I'd worked before that was owned by a, a commercial director, award-winning commercial director by the name of N. Lee Lacey. And he and I became friendly. Like he liked me. He was an older guy, married, you know, uh, just like very hip guy with offices all over the world. And we laughed at the same stuff. You know, we, we, we had a, we had a nice relationship. He was a very good guy and became an important part of my life ultimately. Um, so uh, I'm in his place waiting to audition and I'm talking to some girl, some actress in, in his uh, reception area. And she's, uh, you know, buying it just perfect. I'm laying it out. There it is. It's just, it's just going like, you know, it's like, like a tape. It just, un you press on and there it goes. And um, she's giving me her phone number. And as she's doing that, I get a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's Lee Lacey. It's the director. And he said, Hey, listen, can I talk to you for a sec? And I said, yeah, sure. So I excused myself. And um, he said, I didn't mean to, 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 you know, listen to your conversation, but um, you know, I have an agent out in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I want to see that script when you're finished. <laughs> I love, I love what you said. I want to see that. And I looked at him and I said, Lee, I've known you a few years and you've hired me and I want you to continue to hire me. So I'm going to be real honest with you. I'm not writing anything. He said, what? You were telling that girl. I said, I was just, just to get laid, man. Just, that's it. He, he, he said to me, he said, 
He said, is it working? I said, yeah, man, all the time. He said, Mark, you know, I like you and I've known you. You're right for a couple of years, but I think you're an idiot. <laughs> I said, why? He said, Mark, if you can get girls, women to take their pants off by something that you're saying to them, imagine if you actually sat down and, and wrote a script and wrote those words onto a page in a story. And in, in, the, in, the, in a way that only like a person in their early 20s can, can say this, I said, huh, I hadn't actually looked at it that way. <laughs> so he said to me, write that script and give it to me. So I said, okay. So what happened was it took me a while to write. I didn't know what I was doing. So I just, I, 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 I think it took me like a year or something to write that script, mm. to actually write it. Cause okay. you know, I'd get lazy and I didn't have any discipline and it was just all kinds of shit. So I think it might, might've taken me a year to, to, to do something that now I could probably do in three weeks. Right. So, so, um, <laughs> Uh, uh, I finally finished it and I gave it to him. I had delivered it to him and um, I didn't hear anything. A month, a couple of months went by. And then one day he called me up and he said, Hey, I, he said, he said, well, what, he said, what are you doing? I said, nothing. I'm just at my dad's house, you know, in Pittsburgh, not really doing much right now. Just hanging out with him. He said, well, uh, How'd you like to move to California? So what? So remember that script? I said, yeah. He said, well, I gave it to my agent at William Morris, who gave it to the TV department at William Morris, who then sold it to NBC. Shit. I said, what? He said, that's right. He said, so you have a car, an office, and an apartment waiting for you next Thursday. Uh, your airline ticket is, is being handled right now. That's what's up. And and that's that's why I I the day I moved to Los Angeles, the day I landed in 1976, when I moved, uh, um, I had an agent, William Morris. I had a car. I had an apartment and an office on Melrose Place, right next to Neil Diamond. Wow. And and um, that's how my life began here. So, you know, my dad always said something to me that was pretty interesting. When I dropped out of college, uh, I wanted to come to California immediately. And my dad said, no, I don't think so. And I said, what do you mean? He said, go to New York first. Go, and he, told, he said, go to the Catskill Mountains and you wanna be a stand-up, you wanna do comedy. That's the, that's the center of, of stand-up in the United States is in the Catskill Mountains. It was 1969, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, in New York City, it was. Uh, and he said, go there. And I said, well, what about L.A.? He said, I've been to L.A., not a place you just want to go to. I said, what do you mean? He said, if you're meant to go to L.A., and I think you are, one day it's going to reach out and pull you there. Mm -hmm. And the day Lee called me up and said, uh, uh, you need to move to LA. You have this doing, you know, you got to be out there. Mm. Called my dad and I said, I told him, I said, remember what you said yeah. about LA pulling me there? And I told him, and he said, well, there you go. And, and 
it's interesting because I didn't, I didn't have that. Um, even though I had dips in my career through the years, um, I didn't have that uh, experience of landing in Los Angeles with you know two dollars in my pocket and getting a job as a waiter and trying to do. You know, I landed there. I I was just I I, I landed on a you know like on a moving train. Right. And and it's interesting because I know a lot of people who are now very successful who the, who similarly landed came to LA on a moving train. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's really weird. You know, I I um I'm writing a book about my life and career. Mm -hmm. But I novelized it. I'm writing it third person. I I created a character okay. who's my alter ego. And and the title of the book is Dumb Effing Luck. And and I because as I outlined it I hit on key moments throughout my life and it these were always things that could have gone another way you know yeah and it there it's like Woody Allen's match point right it's where the ball lands on and if it hits the net it's on what side it lands yeah uh, and in in key moments of my life the ball landed on the right side of the net awesome i'll tell you you see that picture behind me yeah okay so people always i get the question I, I i get a question a lot of people in my business get get a question a similar question and that is you know when did you know you were interested in being the performer when did you know when you know when you know and and everybody has their own answer right when did you know you you got the bug people say and and um Everybody has their own answer, and, and mine's a little different. When I was uh, uh, approaching my 10th birthday, my father, this very out-of-the-box, silk mohair, custom-made suit-wearing, alligator shoe-wearing, Cadillac-driving, pinky ring, diamond ring-wearing, <laughs> aluminum siding salesman, um, yeah. Uh, uh, came to me and said, hey, you're going to be uh, 10 in a couple of months. That's a very special birthday. Uh, it's a very special decade that you're entering because you go in a little boy and you come out a man, a young man. So it's it's a very transformative you know, decade for you. Uh, requires a special gift. Just tell me what you want. And then if I can get it for you, I will. So... I said, uh, being a child of uh, a young boy of my of my era, I said, uh, how about the Three Stooges? <laughs> so my father said, okay, I'll look into it. So the next day he called a friend of his who was the booker at a nightclub in Pittsburgh where the Three Stooges had performed, uh, do, sort of do perform on a yearly basis, and, and um, found out that they're going to be in Pittsburgh in January of 59, 1959. My birthday was in September, okay. but, but uh, uh, so um, he called their agent, said he wanted to throw a party Saturday afternoon on this day. Are they in? They, they, they agreed on terms. That was that, right? Came to me and said, hey, I can get the Stooges. 
I'm going to be in January. Up to you. I said, absolutely. So cut two, right? That day, about 60 friends, family, you know, just people who couldn't believe it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Friends of my dad. And uh, they do their show. And halfway through their show, Mo stops the show and uh, looks out at the audience and said, well, we're all here to celebrate Mark's birthday. Where's Mark? So I raised my hand and uh, uh, Mo says to me, uh, your dad tells us that uh, you're Pittsburgh's number one Stooge fan. Is that true? And I said, yeah, it is. I, and I know all your material. So Mo said, really? Well, I'll be the judge of that. Why don't you come up on this stage with us? And I did my froze. I didn't know what to do. My father leaned into me and said, no time to explain this now. Just get your ass up on the stage. <laughs> so, so, so I went up and I, I, I remember not being intimidated, like not, you know, like I knew that these were the three stooges and that was kind of trippy, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really beside myself. I was kind of in control of myself. Yeah. So I started doing, um, Mo said something about well, what's your favorite bit? And I said, you know, Niagara Falls. And he said, do you know Niagara Falls? I said, backwards and forwards. So I started doing it. And the, uh, uh, Larry and Curly Joe Dorita were getting the biggest kick out of it. They were just, they were, you know, I, they thought it was hysterical because I was ostensibly like a little Curly Howard, right? Because okay. my matrix was. So, so, um, um, what happened was Mo stops the show again, puts his hand on my forehead and says, I W the fourth stooge. <laughs> and everybody went nuts. They just like, they went, you know, these, these well, of course it was a papered house, but still they went fucking nuts. They went crazy. And I felt this warm, ooh, this, this kind of blanket that just, just hugged me. And I that I, I'm convinced that's the day because uh, I that's I've been after that I've been chasing that dragon my entire life that's you know that that was the moment and I just aim I just I just that that moment lit up the runway of my life man it just that's I felt so comfortable on that stage <laughs> I just never wanted to leave it I just love I just I I couldn't see shit you know like lights were in my eyes and I could only hear people. I could see the Stooges, obviously, but but I remember just loving it up there, just just really loving it. So That's amazing, yeah. It's an amazing story. Wow, wow. Yeah, um, meeting my heroes has has been humbling for me as well. Who's but, that? Oh, just reaching out and meeting folks like you. Oh, okay, okay. I thought I thought I'm sorry. I thought there was somebody specific in mind that you mentioned. Oh, well, I mean, I I got to meet Larry Hankins. I got to meet... Yeah, I know Larry. Yeah. I got, I've gotten to meet some um, musicians that are really big in my circles because I'm a musician myself. Oh, good. And they're... What's your, what do you play? Mainly synthesizer and guitar and I program beats and stuff like that. But I, I produce... I produce uh, my my record labels LA based and um two of the three musicians I've interviewed over the past year are in LA as well I don't know if you know Annie Harden or no uh, I I wouldn't 
I don't those, I don't go in those circles anymore. I used to I used to hang out with some musicians, but not anymore. Okay. Okay. Right. My sister tells horror stories of LA. But I, why is that? She came out here for rehab. <laughs> well, I love it. You know something? I it it's I hear people do that, you know, and and obviously it's based on experience. I love Los Angeles. It's been really nice to me. Mm. <laughs> it's yeah. it's it's taken an idiot like me and given given me a life. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it, it, it's allowed me to exist, you know, and and been been all in all pretty kind to me. Yeah. Uh, well, I've got to get out there some, at some point. Yeah, I, I think. Um, again, I think a lot has to do with how I got here and. You know that that because I, I I've seen people who are really struggling and uh, have, having a bad time of it and you know as warm as LA can be it can be extremely cold on cold to people too it yeah. can you know I mean and it's very cyclical and you know it's a it's a game that it takes you years to learn how to play is that right yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's much subtler than New York. New York is uh, kind of out there, you know. Okay. Everybody has shit on their sleeve. LA is not like that. LA is very subtle. And it's, but at the same time, you know, I, I look at it and it's been just extraordinarily kind to me. You know, just extraordinarily kind to me. Um, it, it gave me everything I wanted in life. So how do you say, you know, can't say bad things about a place that did that. Sure. Sure. No, it's, it's cool to hear this fresh perspective. Yeah. And you know, it's, it really beyond a certain point. Uh, it's what, it, it's what you make out of it. Mm. Right. Mm. We're all, we're all ostensibly the captains of our own ships yeah. and everybody gets their fuck up time you know we're making poor choices and making mistakes either personally or professionally uh is excusable because you know it's it's a, you're in your experience gathering uh years right after a certain point you know you then, you then once, once you're old enough or experienced enough to know better, whichever comes first, you know, it's like, you know, five years or 50,000 miles, whichever comes first. Uh, uh, as, long, as long as you're at that point where you should know better, if shit doesn't work and you, then, you know, you should know better. Yeah. <laughs> well put. When I was at the comedy store, you know, I used to, I, I was, um, part of the uh, class of 77 with uh, Robin Williams and David Letterman and Jay Leno and really? Andreessen and Michael Keaton and Tim Reed, uh, those guys, um, you know, there, there were hundreds of people trying to be comedians. And, you know, I've been lucky. My name's been on the wall of the comedy store for like 40 some years, like with the, with the original group. And, but there are people who came and went. They, you know, they just, they couldn't, if you can imagine like there's the bubble, right? There's this invisible bubble mm -hmm. 
and and show business for real exists within that bubble okay right mm. and they're they're constantly out out in la people just bouncing off the fucking bubble man mm. just trying to get in trying to get in trying to get, and then there are people who just walk up to it and they just float right in <laughs> right they just there's not they, you know and and i was one of them i know i i know exactly what that's like you know i was I, I when I went to the comedy store, uh, uh, which was like at the beginning of its meteoric rises, like the you know the, the number one place for stand up in the fucking United States. Um, like I said, I got there. Robin got there like two weeks before me. Uh, Leno had been there back and forth from Boston to L.A. Letterman had just gotten there maybe three months before. You know, we all got there within a six month period. Like you know. Well, everybody in that group got there right, right around the same time. Mm -hmm. And we all became regulars very quickly. Right? Yeah. Like, it, it just like, it, it, that crew assembled very quickly. Like, I became a regular, you know, William Morris got me a time at the comedy store my first time. And because Mitzi didn't know who I was, I'm talking about Mitzi Shore, who owned the comedy store. Missy didn't know who I was, but as a favor to William Morris, she said, sure, I'll give him a time on a Monday night. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I had a time and uh, um, I wrote some new material and I had done in the Casco mountains as part of a, a very well-known comedians act. I had done like 150, 200 club dates ending up with two weeks at the Cova Cabana. So being on stage was like nothing new for me. Right. Okay. So, yeah. So, I wrote material that I thought would work. I went up the first time. It worked as well as I could be expected for the first time. They invited me back next week. I fixed the material, did some tweaks, cut some shit, added some shit, went up the second time, worked exponentially better. Mm -hmm. And they gave me a time again for the next week, my third time. That night, the club was extremely crowded. Energy was very high. Uh, um, Mitzi was in her booth showcasing another comedian. So I had a, like a 10.30, 10.45 time spot, some prime time spot. The comedians in front of me did the perfect thing. They were all good. Like, the, like four comedians in front of me were terrific. Mm -hmm. So my turn to go on the audience is like here right yeah. so i know all i got to do is keep them there i don't even have to do i just got to keep them floating okay right i go out there and and luck luck as it was uh um uh the audience juiced from the other acts they 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 bought everything i was selling and just reacted to everything almost like like they crazy like it was like and I was even thinking this is too much, but I'm going to sit here and take it. Right. So I finished my set and I go off to like thunderous applause. Like they just going crazy. I walk off and I see Mitzi sitting in her booth, looking at the audience and looking at me. And I think to myself, yeah, you know, I really don't give a fuck. So I walked right up to her and I said, Hey, Mitzi, does it really have to get any better than that? And, and she said to me, you know, all right, Mark, call in for spots. And that's how I became a regular. That I just, you know, it's like I tell people, you got to just seize on shit. You know, you can't pass shit up. 
It's you know that was that was like a shit or get off the pot moment, right? <laughs> that was a moment where you either have the balls to do that, mm-hmm. or you you know you go back to the end of the line again. I'm not, I didn't feel like doing that, right. you know. And 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 part of you know part of the um, courage, you know, the courage that I had to to do that came from the fact that a I had a big time agent, right? right? I was going around meeting producers for pilot season as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 and I had a manager. Uh, uh, I was going to have a man. I was going to have a manager soon. Uh, I mean, just there were things. And, and I had money in the bank. And, you know, it was like I had this, this air of I was cocky because I had so much in my pocket that this was willing to take the chance. The worst she could have said to me was no, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. but she, she, you know, was caught up in the moment. Like, like I, you know, I could see it while the audience was applauding. I did this. <laughs> I didn't waste any time. It was, this was like a nanosecond decision. Yeah. Right. Perfect. But you, you got to do shit like that. Yeah. You know, this, this is the thing, you know, it's like, um, you, 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 this it's it's like chess in a sense. You gotta you gotta see a move and then know that this is a move and make it, and be brave enough to make it. Right, fortune favors the bold. That's it. Fortune favors the bold. You're right. You're absolutely right. So, again, I'm lucky that that I was able to to be there to do that. That's cool. So what about lately? What are you doing these days? Um, I'm writing a book mm-hmm. that I'm a couple of hundred pages into. I have an agent for my book, which is good. Um, and I have two television shows, series. I'm trying to, I'm right at the beginning stages. I have developed up now sufficiently that I can go and try to sell them. Um, one is just like a, uh, eight to 10 episode limited series. And the other is, uh, uh, a, like eight to 10 episodes for seven years. In fact, the title of the, sh- that show is called those seven years. Okay. So, um, so, you know, that's it. And otherwise, uh, enjoying my house, I have a house you know, out in the Palm Springs area of California and just chilling, just fucking enjoying it. Might as well. Yeah. As well, yeah. It's, it's good that you can. It's, it's good that in, in the midst of all of this that's going on in, uh, in America in particular. Um, oh, yeah. Listen, I'm, I, I watch shit every day. This, it's weird what's going on. Like yeah. everybody, everybody needs to just chill the fuck out. <laughs> People, you need to legalize pot in every fucking state and make it mandatory. Make make people smoke pot and chill the fuck out. <laughs> you know, man. It's for your own betterment. Yes, it's for the society as a whole. So, um. You're a musician. I'll tell you a story. Um, I was working as a road manager for a comedian by the name of London Lee. Uh, 
back in the day in New York. And London was um, from a very wealthy family in, in New York. His, his father was a garment district guy with a giant company. So like hundreds of millions of dollars, you know. And, and um, London decided to be a comedian. Now, and his, his, the, the theme of his act, his character was that he was a poor little rich kid, right? That, that, you know, like he had jokes in his act. When I was a kid, my father got me a German shepherd, not a dog, a real German shepherd. And, you know, just, just silly shit like that, that all, all tracked to, to how rich his father was and how, how stupid that can be, you know? So, um, I, I was, I was, uh, like I said, part I was his road manager, and then I wrote some jokes for him that really worked. And then I became part of his act. We did a little, like, sort of like a vaudeville bit about me and his act. Okay. So I had been on stage with him, I don't know, 40, 50 times by the time this story takes place. Mm -hmm. And um, <laughs> he gets a gig New Year's Eve in New Jersey. And it's fucking snowing and it's shitty weather and it didn't matter. He had that, you know, he, he wanted to do those gigs in that time. So I knew we were going to be going out into that shit. So about six o'clock at night shows like at nine 30, 10 o'clock, something like that. At six o'clock at night, he calls me up and he said, listen, we have a problem, but I have a solution. I said, what's the problem? He said, my, my musical conductor uh, uh, is sick and I can't find anybody. So he had, uh, you, you, so he had music like for once in my life, Stevie Wonders for once in my life. He had charts for like 38 pieces, right? So yeah, he had, oh no, he had like, like charts. He had opening music, opening bows, closing bows, just, so he had real charts. He had like shit, right? Yeah. And I know because I used to hang with the the conductors during uh, rehearsals. Mm -hmm. and I would I would be the one to explain certain things about his act to them that they would know where certain cues were, right? Okay. So so I said, okay. So what's your solution? He said, you're gonna conduct the orchestra. <laughs> I said, what? And I remember I'm like 19 years old. And, and he said, you got a fucking tuxedo, right? I said, yeah. He said, you'll hold up the wand. You've done fucking rehearsals for like, I don't know, I don't know, 50 times. You know what that shit is. Just, you want to be an actor? Act like a fucking conductor. <laughs> so, so, so I said, uh, do I have a choice? He said, no, you do not. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay. So we drove to the gig. And it was in this club in New Jersey. I'm trying, I don't even know where, but it was close to, close to the city, like within an hour of the city. And I walk in and there's like a 34 piece orchestra, real musicians, right. right? Not only was I fucking 19, I couldn't read a note of music. <laughs> okay, not one fucking note, but I knew, I knew like, like London said, I want to be an actor, act like a conductor. I knew the language from listening to all of those people all of that time, right? Like I knew the dialogue. Yeah. 
I even knew the questions that some of the musicians might have, and I knew the answers. But I, I didn't really know the answers. I could repeat the answers. Okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And make it sound like I knew the answers. So I rehearsed the band. Uh, I do exactly an amalgam of, of my favorite conductors that I've seen mm -hmm. and what they said. And uh, come showtime, I light goes on. I counted it down and took the band right, took the orchestra rather, took that orchestra right through his opening song. He actually sang for once in my life, right? Mm -hmm. And I took him, I took him and the fucking orchestra through the whole song. Couldn't fucking believe it. Stevie Wonder. I'm telling you. Holy shit. There you go. So that was that's my uh that's my most profound musical experience in my life. Wow. Wow. That... Talk about being in the right place at the right time. There you go. See, that's the thing about life. Okay, here's here's what life is. It if you're trying to get anywhere in life, if you're not trying, and there's nothing wrong with that, you stay on your side of the creek and you never get, get your feet wet. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Like people who grow up, go to high school in a certain place, never leave the community. And that, that's where they live. There's nothing wrong with it. I got friends that are incredible people. That was their life decision. No, no problem. So then you get the people who want to get to the other side of the creek because they're adventurous, right? They want, to, they want to go. And life, that creek is a raging creek. That creek is designed to take you down, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's a filtration system. It's designed to stop you from getting to the other side. So I have been, again, very fucking lucky that on my journey across that creek, pretty much every time I've needed a stepping stone to appear, it did. So now I got to the other side of the creek and I look back and I, it, I, don't, I don't know how I did it sometimes. And the only thing I can say is it's just a lot of it was like dumb youth and didn't know what I couldn't do uh, kind of things and luck. I respect that. You know, that's, I mean, it's weird, you know, like uh, I found out the other day, somebody sent me an article, uh, an interview with Quentin Tarantino. Uh -huh. And he said, the two films of every film he's ever seen in his life, the two films that scared the shit out of him and continue to haunt him are Bambi and last house on the left. <laughs> so, man, I'll tell you, there you go. Dumb fucking luck. Great story. Dumb fucking luck. Wow. Dumb fucking luck. It's just dumb luck. <sighs> I appreciate that, man. So, um, yeah, man, 
that's uh, if we got it. You're very FM, man. Tony, you're a very FM guy. How <laughs> <laughs> you figure? You're just low key. You're just like you're like you're like every FM disc jockey in the sixties and seventies. Right. <laughs> I actually do late night broadcasting on, <laughs> on the internet, and um, yeah, I've been I've been that's the first time I've been called FM, but it makes sense. Yeah, go listen to some FM. Go listen to some recordings of old FM broadcasters and Brit and jocks, and you'll see. I go, oh, yeah, that's what he was talking about. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you being on Synergy, man. This is a, hey. this is a movement. Um, I'll uh, I'll definitely send you the finished product. Okay, that'd be great. I'll send you the, the YouTube. That'd be great. And the, uh, the audio. Okay. Very cool. Well, thanks for being on, Mark. It was good to meet you, man. My pleasure. You have a, a good night and a, a wonderful holiday season. Same to you. All right, man. All right.